for listening to Remnant Bible Fellowship. This is Brother Jonathan. Here at our Bible study group that I have been teaching in at, you know, out out of uh, our building here, uh, we've been going through some things about Calvinism, and as some of you pay attention through the podcast, we had election, foreknowledge, things like that. And I took kind of a break from that because uh, you need to go into Romans 9 through 11. And so since I was dealing with some people who are not as knowledgeable about the scriptures, then I decided to read through Romans 1 through 8 and then do verse by verse Romans 9. And so, I mean, with the group. And so I really didn't think too much about it, but everybody who has come and things such as that people have talked to have said that uh, they seem to be getting a lot from it. And I think just helping to really just get an idea of Paul's reasons and how he is reasoning leading up to Romans 9. Because those who know Calvinism, they think that they have, you know, the, the market on Romans 9. They think that's their stomping ground, as it were. And really... They don't, and it really, it really frustrates me because Romans nine is easy to see what is actually being said. Now I understand why we get confused about it, but whenever every single source that you go to is giving you a wrong interpretation, or at the very least application of Romans chapter nine verse six through twenty nine, it gets to where there's pastors, teachers, whole churches that it's like they do not ever teach from the passage because it's like they're scared about what they find. Or they're scared that they won't know how to answer certain questions that come from people who've been exposed to Calvinism. And so that, in accordance with, you know, also me coming across many people who have never read their Bibles once cover to cover, and I still struggle to understand that. I understand not understanding everything whenever you read through the Bible. But whenever I see people who profess to be Christians for over a year who have not read their Bibles cover to cover, I struggle to understand that. One of the sure signs that you do belong to Christ is that you have a desire for His Word. And so, and I'm not trying to be harsh with anybody, but maybe just to provoke people, you need to read all of the Bible. And when you read through all the Bible, you read through it again and again and again. Um, as Peter said in 1 Peter 2, 2, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. And there's many people who go around saying things, well, this is biblical, that's unbiblical, who've never once read their Bible cover to cover. And I'm sorry, you have absolutely no basis to go around telling anybody what's in the Bible if you yourself have not read all of the Bible. By what are you making your judgments when you don't even understand the whole? And again, I'm not trying to be harsh. It may be just that my wife tempers me sometimes in my sense of, hey, maybe you just had an abnormal way of somebody provoking you when I was young in the Lord. Um, and that's true. I was encouraged when I was a brand new Christian to read the Bible. And it was it just made sense. I actually started reading the Bible before I attended any church. It just made sense to me. Well, if I'm a Christian, Christians read the Bible, I need to read the Bible. I went to a store, got a Bible, and started reading. I mean, 
that's the way it's supposed to be. But so don't take it as though I'm talking down to anybody in a sense of, you know, hey, you know, you fool, get, you know, this or that. It's, it is something that I struggle to understand whenever people do not read through the whole of Scripture. Now, Romans has been one of my favorite books in the Bible for years. I love it. And as I've grown in my understanding, my, my studies, and, you know, getting into the original languages and all sorts of stuff, I just love it more. And it seems that there's a lot of people who struggle with the book of Romans. My wife says that whenever she, she, that she struggles with Romans for years, of course, my wife was not somebody who was indoctrinated in churches. She was not taught very much throughout her years. Um, because, like I said, there's there's just not very many churches that really would just sit down and go through a whole book of the Bible, reading through every single verse, because that forces you to begin to pay attention to what is being said in a way that you can't if you just read two or three verses and we're going to preach about it, and we might not even reference those verses again the entire time we're preaching. And I'm that's just not the way it's supposed to be. You're supposed to be going through all of God's Word, especially when you sit down and you go through a whole book. And Romans is Paul's longest book. You really are forced to answer questions and struggle with things that you would not have to if you're just skipping around. And so we're going to read through the book of Romans. And I'm going to probably break it down chapter by chapter, maybe just in certain sections, especially as you get towards Romans 5, where you get a lot more depth and theological depth going into what is being said. So the book of Romans was written about mid-50s A.D., and it's one of his major works um, because, like I said, it's not only his longest letter, in a time whenever letters in the Greco-Roman world were an average of 90 words, and then if you had the, some orators like Cicero and them, it'd be like 200 words maybe. But Paul averages, if I'm not, I'm not mistaken, somewhere around 1,300 or more in some of his, in some, just off the top of my head, I can't remember exact number. And so his letters are significantly longer. And also the content of them being instructive and also being theological and communal at times, writing to a whole group, such as a church, a local body. You know, it's very significant. These are very long, especially when you consider the time that it took, the money that it took to write these things. It was, it's, I mean, it's a significant cost sometimes for people who did not have a lot of money, depending on the kind of, did you use, you know, papyrus, parchment, vellum, you know, things such as that. And so, in the book of Romans, Paul is writing to, most likely, a mixed congregation where it is predominantly Gentile. Now, scholars don't know exactly how the gospel got to Rome. Most likely, when you read in Acts chapter 2, you do see that there's Jews and proselytes and stuff, and some of which have come from Rome early on. I think it was around 19 AD. I forget who it was off the top of my head, Tiberius maybe expelled all Jews from Rome, and then later on, and it's actually mentioned in the book of Acts, um, in Claudius actually expelled all Jews from Rome again in AD 49, and seems to have been because there was some division and dissension happening amongst the Jews there because of one Christus, you know, probably misspelling for Christus, the Latin word for Christ, and then 
actually in the writings uh, outside of the, the scriptures, you know, it does seem like they didn't understand what was going on in the Romans, where they just knew some guy who named Christ, you know, is a teacher, and he's like, he's causing all sorts of problems with this amongst the Jews, and so we're just going to get rid of them all. We're going to kick them all out of Rome. And when, when you read in the book of Acts, you see where it says, so-and-so lately come from Rome, for Claudius has expelled all Jews. That's what he's referring to. That's around AD 49. And so this is written several years later. So the gospel had already made it to Rome, So which makes most likely, almost certainly, these churches, and there were more than one in Rome. It was not one central body like the Catholic Church wants to try and say. It was not started by Peter for a number of reasons. One, Peter is not even mentioned. And two, Peter is later seen to be in Jerusalem after the fact. So no, Peter did not start the church or any churches in Rome. Um, Paul did not start any church or churches in Rome, and it certainly most likely was not any of the other apostles that we have any reason to think of. It was most likely that the gospel was taken back there after Pentecost by either Jews or Jewish proselytes, and it had already started to take root there. And so Paul is writing there, acknowledging in chapter 1 that he has not been there yet. He's been hindered in some way, shape, or form, from getting there. He does not attribute it to Satan or anything. It just may be that priority-wise, he had not had a chance to go there, though he was planning to go to the other side of the Mediterranean to labor there, kind of amongst you know Spain and those kind of things, maybe. Um, as we know, he did plan one or two places to do. We don't know if he ever did, but we do know that he was planning or going to try to. And so he is writing to a mixed congregation, predominantly Gentile, through numerous places where he says, among you, all you Gentiles also. And then his warning in chapter 11 talks about, hey, you know, you Gentile believers, do not be, you know, conceited, don't be arrogant and boast yourself against the Jews. He is is appealing to these Gentiles um, more than once. And so while it is very Jewish in its topics and explaining things about, you know, well, what's the relationship of Israel? Has God cast them off? And really just explaining the gospel as we're going to get into, and especially Romans 1, 16 and 17, where Paul states one of his reasons. And he spends really from about chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through the end of chapter 11, explaining some things regarding the gospel and the whole plan as it works out, and explaining God's righteousness and then in chapters 12 through 16, uh, chapter, well, chapter 12 through 15, technically, he's kind of giving some practical counsel about these things. It's like sort of in light of the gospel and then correcting some behavioral things, you know. And in chapter 14, he's also kind of talking about, you know, liberty. Hey, don't judge the Jews who don't eat this or that, don't touch this or that, that it's because of paganism. And we're going to talk about that, you know, when we get there to the liberty that is in Christ. And then you have, you know, hey, submit yourselves to governors and things such as that. And so there's a lot to get into, and I don't know how long this will take. But um, it's something that I really do believe Christians and believers need to spend more time doing. You need to labor to understand the Scriptures, to read all of them, to understand the flow of reasoning um, for the arguments for things, you may be able to quote Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and it says, save a grace through faith, but not of works. But if you don't understand the reasoning behind that, especially in relation to things like, well, what's the purpose of the law of Moses? Why did Jesus have to die? Why can't God just arbitrarily forgive us? You know, all sorts of things like that. I'm sorry, you're not really, you don't really have much depth to 
your doctrine. It's like you have a right conclusion. You don't necessarily have right reasons for it. And so you need to exercise yourself as a believer to get that depth of understanding for the Scriptures. Now, again, I'm not going to be going super in-depth going through Romans until we get maybe to the, the more doctrinal things in chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, and especially 9 through 11, where we're going to deep dive into that to show how it is absolutely not Calvinistic. So I'm mainly going to be almost doing a survey. It's and emphasizing certain things as we go. I don't want to miss the forest for the trees. The point is context, getting the flow of the basic points of what Paul is saying leading up to Romans 9 through 11, because I think that's the one aspect of Romans a lot of people really get confused about, um, because they just don't understand, okay, you know, it seems to say Calvinism to some people, and other, and it's just Calvinists are like, yes, it's this, this, and this, and they're, well, well they're just wrong, is what they are. And so we're going to be kind of reading through it, and I'll stop and comment on things and just try to explain some things as we go. So starting in Romans chapter 1, we read, and I will be reading in the New American Standard Bible. I may use the King James in some chapters because there's not much difference, but and most people are familiar enough at least with the King James Version. But for the most part, I'm going to use the New American Standard Bible. In Romans chapter 1, verse 1, we read, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake, among whom you are also the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, all of that constituted his greeting. Um, and you can compare this with the beginnings of most of Paul's letters, where he says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, and sometimes he'll include Sylvanus, you know, Silas, or Timothy, or somebody else, and then he'll say, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Interesting enough, grace, um, the word Greek word charis, was the way that the Greeks greeted people, you know, grace to you. And then peace, you know, shalom, um, in Hebrew, it's, it's so he's greeting in both the Greek and the Jewish way when he says grace to you and peace. And it's just an interesting little thing. Now, in this, Paul mentions a couple things. And he says, he calls, he says, Paul is identifying himself. He's a bond servant of Christ Jesus. He says he's called as an apostle, that is, as one sent out. And we did a whole lesson on the word apostle. And really what it actually means, whether or not we have apostles today. So there's another lesson on the podcast or the website that you can go and listen to about that. It says he's set apart for the gospel of God. This is what his purpose is. He is a minister of the gospel. Um, and then he goes in and he says a couple of things. He says, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And so he connects the gospel back to the Old Testament. It's not just some, you know, arbitrary dispensational break. No, like Christ said, he says, hey, I did not come to do away with the law, I came to fulfill the law. Christ is the fulfillment 
of all those Old Testament things. And so this is just the fulfillment of all that really the Lord had promised through the prophets about the new covenant that was coming. And that there was come a time whenever he was going to make a new covenant that was not like the covenant with their fathers, talking to the Jews, where it's not going to be about the Ark of the Covenant. It's not going to be about the temple, right? And so all the really about the gospel, it is just, it's a continuation of everything that God said was going to happen. And verse 3, Paul says, concerning his son, that is concerned, uh, the gospel, he promised all these things through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, Christ was descended physically, his physical body was descended from the family of David, just as was necessary for the Messiah, through his stepfather, uh, Joseph, he had a legal claim to be a descendant of David, and then through his physical uh, mother, Mary, he had physical claim. So either way you look at it, both the um, genealogy from Matthew 1 and from Luke 3, he still fulfilled the qualifications to be descended from David, whether physically or legally. He still was a son of David, according to his fleshly body. Verse 4 says he was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. And so some people would say that the phrase resurrection from the dead should be translated a, a resurrection of dead of the dead ones and things like that. And so they say that this is kind of more pointing towards, you know, Christ being declared to be the Son of God because he's kind of the institute he's institution in, oh goodness. He is beginning, we'll use that word instead, this time of those being resurrected from the dead. You know, whether you think about the first resurrection, where blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection, for on such the second death has no power, from Romans, uh, Revelation chapter 20. Or you're thinking about a sense of, you know, we were dead in our trespasses and sins and are made alive by Christ Jesus, right? Or we raised up with him through faith, Colossians chapter 2. Either way, though, all of that's true. And even if you do just hold to the view that it's just he was declared to be the Son of God by his own resurrection, which I do think there's most weight in my, my mind, because he was declared to be the Son of God by his own resurrection from the dead, because Christ himself said, hey, whenever I'm raised from the dead, you shall know that I am in the Father and the Father in me. And so it was, it was justifying and vindicating his claim to be the Son of God, right? And it says it was with power. And he goes on to say, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And one of the things to take into consideration is we read that looking back on it 2000, almost 2,000 years later. You just go, oh yeah, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And not, it's, you really have to step back and kind of remember how much of a statement that was for the Jews in the first century to call this man Jesus of Nazareth. Not only Christ, you know, the, the Messiah, the Mashiach, right? But also call him Lord. And that was a huge step for them to accept, uh, especially those who stumbled over the gospel. And so don't, uh, just one of those things where it's kind of looking back on it and looking at the context, for them to confidently say, this man is Christ. And not only Christ, he is Lord. That was a big thing for them to be willing to do. Uh, verse 5, through whom, that is through Jesus Christ our Lord, we have received grace and apostleship 
to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake. So this is one of the reasons that he has been commissioned. He says, they says he's received grace and apostleship, that is to be one who is sent out to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles, that is, or the obedience as it pertains to faith, right? And there's a reason that Paul doesn't always talk about repentance and faith at the same time, because really when you have a biblical understanding of faith, repentance is necessary. To have a right understanding of faith and belief necessitates repentance from dead works, because you have to turn from those things to have a right trust and belief in God, that trust and obedience. Um, reliance upon him. And so it doesn't—some people say, well, you don't need to repent of this or that, and they say that there's two separate things. You know, John, Gospel John never uses the word repentance, things like that. That's it's just, it's just rubbish. It just shows that you yourself don't have a biblical view of faith, especially as how Paul explains it. But here—and there's so much debate about the obedience of faith and things like that from translators—it just says the obedience of faith, Okay. Take it however you want to. Either way, you need to repent in order to be saved. So you can try to force it however you want to to justify yourself. I'm sorry, you're not going to do a very good job of it. Um, and so he says, among all the Gentiles. That is for his namesake, that is for Christ's name. And verse 6, he acknowledges that these are predominantly Gentiles, at the very least predominantly. Um, he says, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. And so this is something where... Throughout this, him emphasizing the Gentiles and also the relationship to the Jews and what the relationship between the two is in Christ, which he does also in numerous other places, Ephesians chapter 2, Galatians, this understanding of that kind of that divide between Jew and Gentile is done away in Christ is really, it's almost a non-issue for us today to a certain extent, because at least here in our my country in the United States of America, we really don't think too much like that anymore. I'm and right now, even with the racial tensions that are going on, but this was a very deep-seated difference from the Jews, especially where they looked at the Gentiles as dogs. And you know, now the doors kicked open, the Gentiles get to come in, which is exactly what the Old Testament prophets prophesied of. Anyways, you know, Christ would be a light to the Gentiles, and in His name they shall trust. Um, which, you know, Paul does mention later on in Romans 9 through 11. And so it may be that Paul is anticipating that here these Gentile believers and the Jewish believers may have some tensions that he's trying to, I don't know, anticipate and stop before it really creates any kind of major schism, you know. But, and he also calls them the called of Jesus Christ. He says, to all who are beloved of God in Rome called as saints, or called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So all of that constitutes his greeting. And so next, Paul begins talking about some things about, you know, what's going on. You know, he's been desiring to go to Rome. He says, verse 8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. And so he's heard of there's believers in there anyways, even though he has never been there. Verse 9, For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making a request, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. 
verse 11, for I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. Now, it's most likely that he's not talking about spiritual gifts in the sense of, you know, tongues, prophesying, things like that, but he may. Um, but I, that may not be the case. And Romans tw- verse one, chapter 1, verse 12, you see, he says, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. So he talks about there's going to be a mutual benefit once he gets there. And the sense of them being established and their faith along with his faith and just being together, that it is going to be mutually beneficial. And so that could be referencing uh, spiritual gifts and just as they are used in congregations of believers to edify the whole body. But some people have said that they believe it could just be the gospel in general. But if that was the case, then how could he call them brethren already? They already have the gospel. So it's you can't pin down and say that, well, this is absolutely spiritual gifts. But you also can't say that it's absolutely not. But you see, it's not really something he's spending a lot of time emphasizing. Okay, He's just mentioning it in passing. Uh, chapter 1, verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. So Paul emphasizes that he's been wanting to come to Rome, which was a very large city at this time of a million people, and he's been wanting to have some fruit among them, and there's nothing wrong with that. He's wanting to go there so that he might, you know, be able to lead some people to Christ out of the bondage that they're in with paganism and whatnot, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Some people would almost look at it today as almost accuse you of just wanting to build up a little kingdom for yourself or something like that. Well, no, he's wanting to go lead people to Christ. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, he also says that he's been prevented or hindered so far, and he does not attribute it to Satan or anything like that, like he does in Second uh, Thessalonians, I believe, uh, where he talks about, you know, Satan hath hindered me. And... And so him not saying anything about that, it could just be that his priorities at this time had not let him go that far, you know, over into Rome. I mean, traveling back in those days, I mean, you can imagine it's very, very hazardous. It's very time-consuming. You know, you walked everywhere, or you were on a boat or something. That's really what you did. So if you can imagine going all the way from Israel over into Europe, that's a big trip. So whatever the reason was, he hadn't been able to go to Rome yet. Uh, Romans 1.14 says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Now, generally, when people talk about the Greeks and the barbarians, it's like you talked about the, the cultured and the uncultured uh, with the Greeks and the barbarians. The Greeks, you know, kind of used, you know, in a broad sense of cultured Gentiles. And barbarians is like, well, those wild heathen out there. You know what I mean? And then you have the wise and the foolish. That would be a way of saying kind of those who have been schooled and educated and those who have not been educated. But notice what he says. He says he's under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. It doesn't matter. Whether they're cultured or uncultured, whether they're educated or not educated, he considers himself to be obligated to all of them. It says, so for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So he's really wanting to get to Rome to preach the gospel to anybody and everybody. 
verse 16 and 17, and this is where Paul gives kind of the thesis statement for what he's going to spend half the book explaining and giving his reasons for. Verse 16 and 17, it's like the thesis statement for the first half of the book of Romans. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, But the righteous man shall live by faith. So this really is Paul's thesis statement, the point of what he's going to be kind of starting to explain, um, starting in the very next verse, all the way to the end of chapter 11. He's talking about the gospel. He's like, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That is, the gospel, this message that he is preaching about Christ crucified and raised again for our sins. He says, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's that's kind of three-pronged right there. It is the power of God. The source of the power is God. And this is the means for God to save people, specifically those who believe. And so it's like you can almost, you can summarize and be like, there is no salvation apart from the gospel. It alone is what God is doing and the means by which he is saving people and bringing them to himself. And it says to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And Greek they're used in a broad general sense, kind of just Gentiles. And he goes on in verse 17, he says, For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. And that phrase, from faith to faith, um, pretty much is what, and people again have argued about how to translate it and that sort of thing, but really the point of it is kind of emphasizing really that the whole thing is by faith. From faith and how how it begins to the end of it being faith, and again, there's different ways that people said to uh, how to translate it. Some people said it's almost kind of a way of saying kind of the sola fide of the, the Reformation by faith alone, and that there is some merit to that. It's just that Paul is emphasizing that the righteousness of God, whether you're talking about God's righteousness in saving men apart from works, is just by faith, or whether or not you're talking about the righteousness of God as it is a gift given to mankind on the basis of faith, which does seem to be something he has, at least in the foreview here, because of what he goes on to say, where he says, as it is written, the righteous man, or the just, that man who is justified in the sight of God and considered righteous, shall live by faith. That's a quote from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, where it says, the, the righteous man shall live by his faith. And so, that is a big statement to make, especially in a world where there was such a divide between Jew and Gentile. This is the God of Israel we're talking about here, the God who has a temple, the God who has sacrifices, the God who has all these clean and unclean laws and all these things. The question then becomes is, well, how then can somebody be considered righteous in the God of Israel's sight apart from the works of the law of Moses and the temple and the sacrifices and the ceremony and all these things, right? And that is really 
what Paul is going to spend several chapters explaining, how God, the God of Israel specifically, can take men and call them righteous without the works of the law, especially law of Moses, as it's, you know, the Jews' whole culture is wrapped around. And so this is why Paul goes, he starts by going all the way back to just kind of generally talking about mankind really as God originally intended it. With So he's going to go in verse 18, back to just speaking of mankind in general, as it really just kind of, that's the best way to put it, in just broad terms. And then he's going to start zooming into the Gentiles, and then he's going to, in chapter 2 especially, and he's going to start zooming into the, the Jews in chapter 3 especially. And then in chapter 4, he's going to zoom back to Abraham and explain some things about, you know, Abraham, whether or not he was justified by works of the law or by faith. And then in chapter 5, he's going to make a switch. So really the next couple of weeks, what we're going to talk about is really just breaking down what Paul begins to start arguing about. That may be where I stop this episode, because that's a good place to stop for, for today, because right there in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, that's the thesis statement that's going to be explained and developed and really justified by Paul for the next couple of chapters, okay? Where the righteousness of God, why is it that God can call men righteous apart from the works of the law? Why is it that men can be justified in the sight of God by faith? Thank you for listening to Remnant Bible Fellowship. We do hope and pray that you would commit your life to Christ and continue in Him. We desire to see people seeking Jesus Christ and coming to know Him personally. If you have questions about salvation, the Bible, or your own walk with Christ, please contact Brother Jonathan by email. Brother John, that's J-O-N, at remnantbiblefellowship.com. That's Brother John at remnantbiblefellowship.com.